0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And good morning, it's really good to be with you again. My name is Matt Owens, I'm the pastor of Christ the Redeemer, Quincy, a church plant uh, from the Christ the King Network. Would you join me uh, in prayer before we look at this passage? Heavenly Father, who is like you? Your glory fills the skies, you, uh, as Serena has, has already said, Uh, left that glory, that throne behind, uh, to come down. What wondrous love is this? Would we uh, know it? Would your words speak uh, by the work of your spirit now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story of the cross is told in each of the four gospel accounts. The meaning of the cross is the main theme of most of the New Testament letters. But this passage uniquely shows us the cross as seen from the eyes of the crucified one himself. It gives us this rare insight into the mind of Christ. And it's a privilege given to us, not for the sake of our curiosity, but that we might have the mind of Christ among us that would change how we live. We often ask when we want to understand someone's actions, what did you have in mind? Here we see what Jesus had in mind. We get the full insider view as he, one uh, high and exalted, voluntarily descended into humanity, going lower still into the grave, and then was raised up again, exalted above all things. The shape of the story of Christ that we read in this passage has been described as the great parabola. If you can remember from your your math classes what a parabola is. Or as a J curve, it goes as Serena showed us, down, 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 and then up, 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 even higher than before. And it's because Jesus came all the way down that he's able to bring us all the way up with him again. And so we're going to look at these two movements. It's my simple outline. First, Christ came all the way down. And second, Christ was raised all the way up first Christ came all the way down verse 5 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus Paul's been addressing in this section what it means to live worthy of the gospel and in the previous verses we see that the hallmark of the gospel oriented life is unity the gospel lived out in community is unity being of one mind not meaning that everyone agrees on everything that's not biblical unity but being single-minded in an overarching purpose and that mind he goes on to say is the mind of Christ the mindset or disposition of Christ which is ours because Christ is alive and he lives in his people his church Our unity is forged not only by following Christ's example but by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us and reproducing in us the mind of Christ, a posture of humility, other-centeredness in us. The body of Christ must be directed by the mind of Christ, just as our body parts are directed by our minds. Okay, so here's the mind of Christ. Verse 6, Though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was equal with God the Father, that word for equal is iso, which we we still use as a prefix, mainly in math and science, isometric, isotopes, he did not consider that equality a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto at all costs, a thing to be used for his own advantage. But instead, as, as Pastor Kent Hughes puts it, rather than viewing his equality with God as something to keep, he saw it as qualifying him for his humble descent to save his people, a thing of astonishing wonder. And this has everything to say to us about how we use power and authority. Do we use our power, whether formal power, a given role or title, or relational power for self-advantage, to exploit others? Or do we use it to bless others, to serve others? As Jesus says elsewhere, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ used his unimaginable, unlimited power, not for his own gain, but for us and for our salvation. Jesus did not consider his equality with the Father as something too precious, too valuable to let go of, but rather something too precious, too valuable to hoard, to keep to himself. And this equality with the Father is significant. A common historical argument against Christianity, uh, you may have heard before, it goes, goes something like this. Sure, Jesus was a great man, but he never really claimed to be God. That was something his followers attributed to him after his death, and it developed over the next several generations. Maybe you've heard that several books have been written on, with that basic thesis but we see Jesus' divinity clearly in this passage, speaking of his equality with God the Father. And this text goes on to, to use even stronger language, declaring that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now here's the thing, Philippians is written less than 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So there's still many people alive who knew Jesus well enough to dispute his claim that he's God, or, or, or dispute his, that he claimed to be God or to come forward with some shortcoming from his life to demonstrate that he's not God. But no one does. More than that, there's widespread consensus that in this passage, Paul's quoting something, an early creed or a Christian hymn. Uh, It's written in something like stanzas or verses, something that would have been well-known enough that it had already made the rounds in the Christian communities by this point. That means well before the writing of this letter, the church was already declaring the divinity of Jesus, consistent with what Jesus said of himself, that he is the Lord, that he and the Father are one. And yet, verse 7, he emptied himself. A lot of ink is spilt on this phrase. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Did he become diminished when he became man or somehow less than God? But the next two phrases actually explain how he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He fully identified with humanity, became fully human without losing his divinity. Gregory of Nazianzus, an early church father, famously wrote, What was not assumed cannot be healed or cannot be redeemed, depending on your translation. Meaning only if Jesus became fully human, as we are, can he save us completely, every part of us. And so God became a baby. This hits me when I hold uh, our baby, who's, who's eight months now. I think to myself, Jesus, you were once this size. You were smaller even. You were smaller than Silas. And a few months ago, when I was swaddling uh, our our baby boy Luke from this scary new world outside the womb, I remembered, Jesus, you were once wrapped in swaddling clothes. Author Frederick Buechner writes of the incarnation of God becoming man as a sort of vast joke whereby the creator of the universe comes among us in diapers. And he concludes... Until we have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. God came into the world weak and vulnerable, and by vulnerable here I mean woundable. It was possible for him to be wounded, which of course he would be, and by his wounds we are healed. This passage not only speaks of Christ's self-emptying, not only speaks of what he loses, of subtraction, but also of addition, of something being taken on. He takes on the form of a servant. Therefore, we can know that he understands and he empathizes with what it means to be human in all of our weakness and hurting, sorrow and joy. When you feel vulnerable, you can pray to the one who made himself vulnerable. When you feel lonely, you can know that he has felt loneliness. If you feel betrayed, know that he has been betrayed, and no one more undeservingly. His self emptying was a voluntary giving up of the visible manifestation and benefits of being God. He did not cease to be God. But he concealed all his glory and majesty by taking on a normal human form, so that those who heard or saw great things from Jesus could ask, and they did, isn't this the carpenter's son? Despite some depictions that you may have seen, Jesus' face didn't radiate light. He didn't glow in the dark. Isaiah 53 prophesied of him, the suffering servant, that he had no former majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. His outward appearance was ordinary, humble. There's this video that made the rounds on social media, maybe a couple years ago, of a, of a man playing a violin for spare change near the doors of a Washington, D.C. metro subway station as people are, are passing by on their morning commute. And the video fast-forwards to show hundreds of people who pass by him without taking any notice. Over a period of several hours, a few people stop to listen, and a handful drop coins into his violin case as they hurry past. Finally, there's a woman who stops and stands still for a while. You can see all the, uh, all the other people who are, who are in fast-forward motion rushing by her, She waits until he finishes a song, and then she approaches him and says, I saw you play at the Library of Congress. It was fantastic. And the two begin to converse. She recognized the violinist as a one-time child prodigy, now acclaimed as one of the best in the world, a man named Josh Bell, who a few nights earlier had sold out Boston Symphony Hall, the average ticket going for $100. The violin he played in the subway station was handcrafted in Italy in the 1700s and valued at over a million dollars. Sometimes in our preoccupation with the things that we think are important, we don't realize the brilliance and value of what is right in front of us. And with the exception of when Jesus pulled back the curtain at his transfiguration to show his glory and majesty to a select few, he physically did not stand out. In humility, he took the form of a servant, and there are two main words translated servant in the New Testament. This is the lesser. This is the one that is sometimes translated slave. The entirety of his life in the flesh from birth to death and beyond was characterized by serving. The Lord of the universe, the maker of, of the stars and planets beyond imagination. My four-year-old Liam is really into space right now, so I read him in a book recently. There's 150 billion galaxies that we know about, each with billions of stars. The creator of all that was born in a dirty place, grew up in an insignificant town to poor parents. He had little worldly possessions, was a man of no reputation. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now to be clear, Jesus uh, never became humble because he was humble. He's the fountain, the origin of humility. What this is saying is that this downward self-humiliation was self-imposed, that he willingly embraced a low position. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was transfixed on this phrase. He humbled himself. He writes, It must be categorically true that there was no other being in heaven or on earth or in the abyss who could humble him. Not Pilate, not Herod, not the high priest, not the Romans with all their power. No one alive today and no worldly government ever. But he humbled himself. He came all the way down. And his downward course continued down, down, down to the very point of human death, even death on a cross. And that phrase, even death on a cross, indicates what the original readers all knew, that the cross was the most violent, degrading, dehumanizing form of execution there was. Today crosses are everywhere, not just on churches but on hospitals gravestones around people's necks, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But it's easy to forget that this was a symbol of torture, humiliation, and death, so offensive that it was considered unmentionable at the dinner table to talk about the crucifixion of a slave, even by a society that treated them without dignity. Fleming Rutledge, in her book on the crucifixion, writes, crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. According to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposefully absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. This is the cup that the Father had given him to drink, and in full obedience, he would drink it down to the dregs. To free us from the curse of sin, he would become a curse. For us. As the scripture says, cursed are all those hung on a tree. He came all the way down. This is the mind of Christ, looking upward to his Father and outward to us, in obedience to his Father and in love for us. He held nothing back. No one with so much power and glory, has ever given it all up to become so low, he came down, down to the womb, down to the manger, down to being a servant, down to his knees to wash the feet of his disciples, who in a matter of hours would run away and deny and betray him. Down all the way to the cross where he was treated as less than human, down into the grave. As J.I. Packer has written, for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that invoked such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. But it meant love to the uttermost for the unlovely, who through his poverty might become rich. This self emptying, self sacrificing love is the very heart of the gospel. He came all the way down. But thankfully, that's not the end of Jesus' story. Second, he was raised all the way up. This passage turns on the first word of verse 9, therefore, the picture here is that of a catapult, the arm being ratcheted down, ever tighter, down, down. Each click of the gears increases this explosive tension, down, down, until snap. The gear is tripped and an explosion of unimaginable force launches the projectile soaring. The down, down, down of Christ's self-humiliation is followed by the up, up, up of the Father's soaring exaltation. Down, down, down until that great earth-shaking moment of resurrection. The stone cracks and he rises up again, this time with us on his back. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Miracles, the Christian story is a story of God descending to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down into the nine months which precede human birth, going lower still into being a corpse, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature that he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. And then Lewis gives this picture. One has the picture of a a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some giant, complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Jesus came all the way down so that he might lift us up. Romans 3 says that we're all in the same boat. All have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God but when we fell short of his glory he laid aside his own glory and came down all the way down to unite sinners to himself and to carry us up with him and seat us with him in the heavenly places Jesus became the lowest of the low in order to save the lowest of the low and because he became low Because he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The verb tenses are important here. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. God has highly exalted him. He doesn't exalt himself, but he trusted his father to exalt him, to vindicate him. His super exaltation is directly connected to his self-humiliation of the incarnation and death on a cross. And this shows that uh, the life that God most heartily approves is the life of obedience, following the footsteps of Christ. A life of humility, using power to advantage others, not oneself. Looking upward to the Father and outward to others, holding nothing back. Therefore, God, has highly exalted Jesus, indicates a higher position than he had previously. And this is confusing. If he was God, was equal to the Father, how can he be any higher? And what it seems to be saying is that he humbled himself by concealing his glory. Now he's super exalted by the full revelation of his glory. His his superiority, His preeminence over all of His creation is more fully evident. His glory is more fully revealed because of His descent and resurrection and exaltation. The resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation demonstrate that though He appeared as a humble servant, He is the Lord. He is exalted over all things. And this is how we see Jesus praised in heaven in the book of Revelation. John has a vision of a throne room in heaven, and what does he see there? A lamb, looking as though it had been slain. A lamb, the ultimate depiction of lowliness and vulnerability. But the lamb is in a throne room, the ultimate place of honor and exaltation. And it becomes clear that the Lamb is Jesus Christ, surrounded by the multitudes, on their faces, crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He will be praised for all eternity, not only because of his power to create and rule over all things, but also because he did not use his power as Lord of the universe as a reason to prevent him from coming down to rescue us, he was slain, he held nothing back, and by his blood he triumphed. And so for all eternity, he's given the honor and praise and glory he deserves as one who was so very high, who came so very low, and now God has highly exalted him. Verse 9 and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the name that is greater than any other name that is bestowed on Jesus? It's God's own name, the Lord. This word Lord is the same Greek word used to translate Yahweh, the Lord in the Old Testament. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow in heaven, indicates the angels on earth, means all living humans, and under the earth means probably both the dead and the fallen spirits, the demons. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this lowly, crucified, but risen and exalted Jesus is the Lord, that he reigns over the universe, a confession of his lordship that's made for the first time standing before jesus in response to the overwhelming visible glory of jesus will not be a saving confession it may be more be more of a begrudging admission but all will recognize the reality herod will confess jesus is lord caiaphas the high priest will confess jesus is lord pilate will hitler and stalin will confess Jesus is Lord. Every U.S. president will confess Jesus is Lord. Every mass murderer, every tyrant, either in this life or the next, one way or the other will confess Jesus is Lord. Even Satan and his minions will have to confess, admit that Jesus is Lord. And so may we declare it now in adoration, not when it's too late, as an admission of defeat and despair, And to that end, may we share the mind of Christ. May we follow Jesus by getting low. It's been said that the Christian life follows the pattern of Christ's descent and exaltation. A J-curve. We humble ourselves, confess our need of God, and wait on Him to raise us up. We at my church and in this church as well enact this pattern weekly in our worship service. Each time we confess our sins and our posture reflects this Getting low by kneeling or bowing, and then allow God's assuring word of grace, the gospel, to be the thing that raises us up. We may often wonder to ourselves whether we are good enough or great enough to be used by God. But it seems the better question, based on this passage, is Am I low enough to be used by God? May we be marked by a willingness to lower ourselves a willingness to humbly serve others. We read in 1 Peter, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. May we not see our power or status or dignity as something to cling to, to hold on to at all costs, but as gifts of grace that God has given us, that we may bless others, serve others. And may we instead cling to May we hold on to at all costs the crucified and risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we need your mercy to understand our need of your mercy. So would you be merciful? Would you show us our need of you? Would you show us our our need? Would you help us cling to you? Would we know that you have clung to us? That you have come down and grasped us? That you have suffered with us and for us? That you know what it is to be human? That you know that you can sympathize with our weakness? Would all of that cause us to come to you Uh, in prayer at all times, and all seasons. And would we know that uh, you have conquered and that you have conquered for us. Would we see it now? Would we see these realities in the physical communication of uh, these realities in the sacrament as we come to your table? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.